Well, welcome. In our series playbook, there's just nothing better than watching great sacks and a great play in the NFL. And we're looking in the series playbook about what it is that sacks us. And that often what happens is a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And the very thing that drives you down the field in life, like football, is the very thing that causes you pain when you get sacked by it. I'll give you one of mine. One of the great good things in my life I often turn into an ultimate thing is approval. Approval. So here's what it looked like. You know, several years ago we started our church in, in Indian Hill at a, in a uh, CCD was our facility, and it was like every Sunday I'd get up for rehearsal. Dun 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 dun. We're running through rehearsal. Oh, good job! It's gonna be a great sermon, Chad. Thank you, thank you. Dun 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 dun. We had one service. Dun 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 dun. New person. Oh, first time here. Great job. Really enjoyed the sermon. We're coming back. Dun 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 dun. Second service. We're two services now. Double the dose of approval. Oh, that was fantastic. We get into the new building. Three services. Dun 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 dun. Four services. Dun 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 dun. And I noticed in my journal, looking back about five years ago, the Sunday afternoon funk. And in the Sunday afternoon funk, the same thing that drove me became the same thing that sacked me. Attendance was down this week. Did I do a bad job last week? Oh, I should have said that. I wish I'd said that. We got a couple connect cards that criticized the use of the such and such. And, and all of a sudden, the thing that was building me up was the very thing that slammed me down. Because I took a good thing and made it into an ultimate thing. That's true with winning. Chris Everett, the tennis player, had a very, I think, honest reflection, I guess, on how winning became something that drove her and didn't bring the joy. She said it this way, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed, afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost without it. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. As we talk about idols, putting things in your life besides God is number one. That's a great way to say it. When your identity is defined in something, that you're lost without it. It might be approval of other people. It might be winning. Or it might be body image. Talked to a guy who ran triathlons his whole life. He saw himself as a sports fanatic. He loved working out. He loved looking at himself. He loved how he looked because he was an athlete. He loved his physique. He found his identity in how he looked. It wasn't just a good thing. It was an ultimate thing. And then he had health problems. And those health problems meant he couldn't work out the way he used to. Because he couldn't work out the way he used to, he didn't look the way he used to. Because he didn't work, look the way he used to, he found himself tempted to do things he'd never do before. He found himself dabbling in and ultimately being in an affair, all because he wanted to sort of reprove that he still could attract somebody, to prove that he had the ability to attract a woman. He, he, his, his idol of his body image that sacked him when he had health issues drove him to do things to validate himself that he would have told himself he would never do. Other times it's achievement. New York banker was indicted or, or fired, rather, for addiction to prescription drugs. And we would say, you know what sacked him was prescription drugs. He says, no, that's, that's the symptom. 
the reason I got hooked on prescription drugs is I had a belief that there's no excuse not to perform. He said, I live by two rules. Rule number one, I can control how you see me and how you feel about me by my achievement. And rule number two, nothing else matters. Oh, that's an idol. And the very thing, his performance that drove him down the field is what sacked him because he kept having to take drugs to keep himself at that level because otherwise it was never enough. And many of us wonder why we're not finding purpose. We're wondering, where's real meaning in our life? Why do I make the same mistakes? Why do I get sacked by the very things I love and say I care about? Well, it's not about the plays we run. It's about the voice in our head. There's a voice of what it is that determines our identity, a voice that speaks to us about what really matters. And in this series, we're looking at these cycles in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, it always goes the same way. Top left, Israel has a winning season. Things are being incredibly successful. And then they decide to take their success and make that more important than God. And with that, they then take God's playbook and they throw it out. And God's a gentleman. He removes his blockers. He allows the opposing nations to come in without his protection, and they get clobbered by it. And then they cry out, oh, this hurts. Oh, I can't believe I got a prescription drug problem. Oh, I can't believe I got the Sunday funk going on all the time. Oh, I can't believe that I don't even know how to retire because my whole identity was built in my career. And they cry out, and God sends them a new quarterback called Judges, and it leads them back to victory. As we mentioned last week, where was Israel most vulnerable? When they were successful. They were most vulnerable to exchange success and achievement and financial benefit with putting God first in their life. So today I want to look at, we're going to look at Judges chapter 2, and two skills that will help us catch that voice in our head before it sacks us. Number one, we've got to learn how to watch our own game films. And number two, we've got to check the big green dot on the back of our helmets. And if we will do this, we are going to avoid a lot of pain in that cycle. We're going to be able to, to learn the easy way, not the hard way. Break free from those patterns. And here's the great news. You're going to be free to enjoy your success without being mastered by your success. It will no longer control you. The first thing we look at is watching your game film. One of the most important things, as you watch the book of Judges, is they do the same mistakes over and over again for about 350 years. It just goes around and around and around. And you wonder, like, why doesn't somebody look back and say, hey, we did this before. This didn't work. We've got to stop this. Warning, warning, Will Robinson, stop! But they don't look back and reflect on their game film. And what NFL teams will tell you is the secret to success in the NFL, the secret to life, is watching your game films and seeing your patterns, finding your motivations. Discover why you do what it is you do. That's not psychobabble. That is the path to success. In fact, in the NFL, they call the camera that catches everything on the game film, they call it the eye in the sky. Let's watch. I love what they said. It's not just watching film, it's studying it. Many of us just sort of cruise through our life. We don't take time to stop and watch it. To ask God to go back through our day and say, now why did I get mad there? Or why am I in that funk? For me, it was five years of noticing a pattern of the funk, and I began to say, you know what, I think I've made approval my identity. And I began to say, I still want approval, but it doesn't define me. And I found that about five years ago when I did that, I don't have the funk anymore. I'm more open to feedback anymore. 
But it took a time of beginning to walk through my day, walk through my marriage, walk through my, the way I communicate and say, God, what might you want to show me? What is my game film in life? Some of us do that professionally, but we do not do that personally. Now, the book of Judges, chapter 2, sounds a lot like chapter 1, which sounds a lot like chapter 3. The game film is almost always the same. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what got them to the place of doing evil? Well, they began to serve other gods, the Baals they were called in those days. They put something besides God as a number one thing in their life. And when that happened, the next step is they began to forsake God because he was no longer important. And the writer says, this was the God who delivered them out of Israel, who delivered them out of Egypt. This is the God who loved them and cared for them and rescued them. This is the God who gave them the law. This is the God who done it all for them. And they abandoned him for something else. They followed other gods. And when you follow other gods, when they become more important than you, you find yourself bowing down to them. You sacrifice your recreation for this thing in your life. You sacrifice your marriage for this thing in your life. You sacrifice your children for this thing in your life. You sacrifice, all, ironically, your own happiness to get this euphoric feeling that can last for a moment in your life. And the Lord removes his blockers, delivered them into the hands of the other nations. He says, you don't want my protection, I won't give it to you. And the plunderers come in and despoil them. They take away their treasures. They take away their happiness. They take away their success. And then they were greatly distressed. And God is so kind. When they cry out in their distress, he helps again. But again, this pattern will repeat itself for 350 years. Same thing. All those stages over and over again that we looked at. If somebody had watched the game film, guys, we're being successful. We've got to pray. This is where we're most vulnerable. Guys, we're doing really well. You remember last time what happened we were doing well? We threw out God's playbook. Warning. But we're not really reflective people. We're too busy to be reflective. We're too busy to watch our game film. And to get underneath the game film, to not just look at our behaviors, but look at what's the driver of our behaviors. What's caused us to forsake doing the right thing? Kierkegaard had an interesting comment. He said, before you break the bottom nine, ten commandments, you always break the first one first. Have no other gods before me. Because if achievement, for example, is your God, not the God who gives you grace, then what happens is you find yourself coveting after other people because you're coveting to fulfill this fulfillment. If you have a different God before you, your God might be pleasure. You find yourself having affairs. You told yourself you'd never do, but you want pleasure. Or maybe it's deeper than just pleasure. It's you want to feel attractive. And so you find yourself wanting to be validated in your attraction. So you find yourself actually committing adultery, one of the later commandments. But it all started with you put something in your life besides God. There's a sociologist named Peter. He wrote a book called The Homeless Mind. And how in every culture in history, every culture offers you something, usually a good thing, to become your ultimate thing. He said in traditional cultures versus modern cultures, it offers you something different. But ultimately, they all don't satisfy. In a traditional culture, they might emphasize honor, for example. You need to do the honorable thing. You need to be a good citizen. You need to be a good mom. You need to be a good dad. You need to have obedient children, which is all nice. But now your identity is based on whether or not your kids behave? That doesn't seem very secure. Your identity is whether or not your, your husband or your wife uh, uh, do nice things? Well, we all want to try and do nice things, but you don't want to put your identity in somebody else's behavior. 
You're a good citizen, and then you end up hiding. You hide all your mistakes because it would be shameful, because honor is your God. And so you can't be honest about your mistakes, because every time you make a mistake, you've brought shame into your life. That's in a traditional um, society. Our modern society is much more individualistic. It more says it's all about you. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Freedom! Independence! That's where you're going to find your real meaning in life. Make that your number one goal. How many people do we know who the whole time they said, I had to follow my love, have devastating sacrifices of kids and previous marriages, all because they wanted independence or pleasure or achievement, good things, competition, winning. It's all about you and what you want to achieve. And that achievement, though it's a good thing, when you turn it into an ultimate thing, it doesn't satisfy. David Brooks had a great quote on this. He described what's happened in the family today based on our society. He says, we're living today in a time where we have had a professionalization of childhood. From the earliest years, an alliance of parents and schools creates a pressure cooker of competition designed to produce students who excel in everything. This massive organic apparatus, the mighty Achievatron. The family is no longer what Christopher Losh once called a haven in a heartless world a counterbalance to the dog-eat-dog areas of life. Instead, the family has become the nursery where the craving for success is first cultivated. In 2009, they did a study, and they found that more and more students were going into finance, corporate law, and specialized medicine, which was fine, but they were going into it for the reason of the high paychecks and the allure of success. At the same time, they found the amount of folks several years later as they tracked that who felt like they had were unfulfilled in their jobs was going higher and higher and higher. Because they were asking the question, not what am I called to do that will make others flourish. That's a great reason to go into law. It's a great reason to go into medicine. But instead of saying, what could I do that would make others flourish? They had said, what will make me flourish? And they were unsatisfied. And, and here's one of the things you can find out is that when you have inappropriate emotions from a particular good thing. You say, why, why am I reacting so badly? Why am I acting so strongly? It's the pressure. I remember when we first had kids and, and we had to get into a good nursery school. Now, you may be a long way away from this. I'm a long way away from this, but I remember the pressure. This is not the nursery school. This is the beginning of their lives. And if we get in the wrong nursing school, Javen and Sierra will never succeed. They will never know their letters. They will never get into elementary school. And if they don't do well in elementary school, they're not going to do well in high school. They don't do well in high school. They're not going to do well in college. They do well in college. They're not going to get a job. And they're going to live in our basement. We had better get this nursery school right. Now, there's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with wanting our kids to be successful. But that inappropriateness of it's never enough pressure cooker. We wonder why our kids are so stressed. There's no margin. Because we've taken a good thing, like achievement, and we've made it an ultimate thing. And they don't even have a place in the home, he says, at which they can find freedom from that. Again, let's go back to that diagram. If they had watched their game film, they would have seen this was happening again. How, many, how often do we look at our game film and say, why do we keep running our falls the way we run them? We're always stressed out. Why do we have no time for date night? Why is it we seem like our tanks are so empty that we get irritated at each other? Why are we doing this? 
We had that. I loved select soccer. Loved it. And I'm not against select soccer at all, but we played it for a long time. We enjoyed it. That's how my parents made some of their best friends going to, you know, every weekend going. But there came a place where we began to say, we're not enjoying this anymore. We're making huge sacrifices. We're bowing down to this thing. We're losing church time. We're losing family time. My parents were losing marriage time. And we just decided that we were going to have to make some changes. And, of course, what happens? You're never going to get into college. You'll never play in college. All the pressure of that system. And ironically, my dad started the, 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 the traveling soccer team, but he started it so he could actually control that a little bit. And we could have a team that was just as competitive but have a little bit more margin in our life. And everybody said, oh, my goodness, you'll never win. In fact, my sister had to start a new select team in my hometown because the one my dad started has turned into the monster. So she starts one. They said, well, you could play for Holly Olden's team, but, you know, it's not the Blaze because the Blaze, we do it right. Because she's only practicing twice a week, not five times a week. Uh, but then they went to the Quad Cities, wherever it was, and my sister's team played against the Blaze and beat the snot out of them. <sighs> now, you can't always control that, but I think you should ask yourself, this thing that's causing so much pressure in my life, that I've got my whole identity in, that everybody else is saying and believing, why am I not watching my game film and asking why I'm doing what I'm doing? I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't watch our game films, why we don't reflect on our lives. For some of us, we're just too busy. We're too busy driving down the field to reflect on why we're driving ourselves down the field. For some of us, we avoid because I don't want to see and think about how I responded to my spouse. I'm sort of embarrassed by how I did that or how I parented last night or why I got mad or why I made that decision. We're embarrassed to reflect or watch our game film. Others of us were just too distracted to do it. We're too defensive. Because our identity is in this thing, we can't take critique or feedback for that thing because we're so defensive. Because that's, that's our life. I can't even imagine if that was wrong. I've given years to that. I can't be wrong. Which leads to fear and embarrassment. And that's how you can know if something besides God's number one in your life. It fills you with fear and shame and embarrassment and guilt, not freedom. God always brings freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's insecurity. It's never enough. It's never enough bank account. It's never enough high enough salary. There's a lack of safety. In other words, we just don't have a habit of pulling out the game film, watching our day and saying, God, how would you want me? Because I'm loved fully by you, because I'm forgiven fully by you, what might you suggest I could do better? The great NFL teams don't just watch film. They study it. And here's the thing. If you begin to watch your life, if you begin to invite God into the details of your life, you're going to find winning combinations. You're going to find little details in your life that God will use to accomplish great things. But many of us don't get to those great things with God because we're not digging into our game film. We're not noticing the patterns in our life. It's a great clip from that Eye in the Sky NFL film that shows what happens when you see little details and the great success that can come as you invite other people into your life, as you watch what's going on in previous games. Let's watch. So one little detail allowed him to then run three touchdowns in the following games. How many of us are missing out on winning changes in our life because we just haven't reflected on some patterns in our life that, honestly, everybody around us knows, but we haven't invited that kind of feedback in? We haven't invited God's feedback in whatever reason we mentioned. But C.S. Lewis mentions in his book, Mere Christianity, that often what's really driving us is deeper than we might think. 
It's deeper than what I call spam, status, performance, appearance, and money. Those are the four things that often we put as substitutes. But C.S. Lewis suggests there's something deeper. He says, I don't believe that the economic motive or the erotic motive always accounts for everything that goes on in the world. Oh, there's a lust, but it's a longing to be on the inside. It takes many forms. You want the delicious knowledge that we are, just we four or five, we are the people who really know. As long as you're governed by what you desire, you'll never be satisfied. You're governed, you're controlled by it. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. In other words, you say, I so want to be accepted. I want to be in the appropriate social settings. I want to have the appropriate reputation. And you say, I would never be a gossip. Except when you find out that in order to be an insider, there's people in the way. So you find yourself doing things you said you'd never do. You gossip about somebody. You question somebody's motives. Also that because they're in the way of what you're trying to accomplish. You've set a particular position in the company as that's when you'll be happy. And you find yourself saying things and doing things to get other people out of the way of your ultimate goal. Because you want to be in the know. You feel like if you achieved that, if you got that, you would have what you always wanted. And you get there and you're like, huh, this was awesome. This is great for about a week, maybe a month. And then you say, wow, this doesn't satisfy. This didn't give me that insider feeling I wanted. Which is why we need to not only check our game film, but we also need to check our big green dot. As I mentioned last week, I'm a little terrified of this this series because I'm not a big NFL watcher. And so whenever I mess up, please give me feedback because I'm sure I will mess up lots of different pieces. But as I was watching lots of game film over the last six weeks, one of the things I noticed is that there's a big green dot on one of the helmets in offense and defense. You guys seen this big green dot before? Anyone? Big green dot? Yeah, many of you know about it. I'm like, oh, I found something. Maybe the other people don't. I noticed something in a game film. There's a big green dot on the back of the quarterback, if you're on offense, and there's one on defense. That big green dot allows the quarterback to talk to the sidelines, to call plays. For a certain period of time in a game. And what we need to realize is that we all have a big green dot. And it doesn't matter what play that we call. We've got to ask ourselves, who's really calling the plays? As I put up on the screen here, it's not what's on the helmet. It's whose voice is in the helmet. Who's really calling the plays in your life? See, many of us, we switch marriages. Man, that was my problem. That, that, that woman I was married to. That man I was married to. And then we find the same pattern reveals itself in the next marriage. Man, two mistakes. We switch helmets again. We do it with career. My career is going to make me happy. Oh, I got a bad boss. Another bad boss. Another bad boss. Or maybe there's a green dot that says that my career is going to define me. Maybe there's a green dot that's not allowing me to appreciate or respect authority. We've got to figure out what the voice is in our head that's calling the plays instead of just always changing the plays. Because it's not what's on your helmet it's the voice in your helmet that's determining what we do. A little later on in the book of Judges, it talks about the next pattern. And here's what you notice about the pattern. It sounds a lot like the one we read a few minutes ago. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, the same God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods and they bowed down to them. And here we're in verse 12, not verse 6. The green dot kept driving them. Whatever situation they had, even if a different judge had brought them back to freedom, they still had this green dot that was driving them back to make the same mistakes over and over again. 
we've got to figure out what our green dot is. And figure out what your green dot is so then you can begin to speak into it. Think of Rocky Balboa, the first movie. He's got a speech. Now, we know Rocky is a competitor. We know him as a, as a great fighter. We know him as a guy who cannot stop making movies because nobody else will hire him, so he just keeps making these Rockies. And one of my favorite scenes is the one where he's like, Adrian, if you go fight, then I'm going to fight against Corner, and i got to go the distance. i got to go the distance. Nobody's gone the distance, Adrian. And if I can go the distance, I'll prove that I'm not a bum. Now, why was he competing to prove he wasn't a bum? That's his identity. If I lose, I guess I'm a bum. If I win, I'm not a bum. And then when I win that, I better make ten more movies to keep proving I'm not a bum. But you see, that's when something becomes so important to you. It becomes the thing you bow down to. i gotta, I got to not be a bum here. Ernest Becker not a follower of Christ, not a Christian, but he writes about this tendency in all human beings to put some green dot in your life. There's something that's going to define your ultimate identity. I love how he says it. He says our need for worth is so powerful. It's so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. It's our God. It's our source. The self-glorification that modern man needed in his innermost nature he now looked for in a love partner. So, so here's one version of the green dot. Your spouse is going to be your, your deification. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. Spiritual and moral needs now be focused on one individual. And you say, if I could just marry the right person, and you marry them, and they are your deification. They're going to provide for all your needs. And you, are, you get it. And it is awesome. And you go, this is working. For about a week. And then you find out that the person you married, as wonderful as they are, they are not qualified to be deified. They cannot meet all your emotional needs. They can't meet all your physical needs. They can't meet all your spiritual needs. And eventually they resent the fact that you think they can. And you resent the fact that they can't. And now you have an unhappy marriage because you got sacked by the very thing that you thought would fulfill all your needs. Because instead of giving to your spouse, you're taking identity from your spouse. It's a theologian by the name of Thomas Olden, I think. And he's a speaker, he's a communicator, and so he's sharing honestly about his struggles. He says, suppose my God is sex, or my physical health, or my political party. If I experience any of these under genuine threat, I feel shaken to the depths. And you know people like this. You know Democrats like this, you know Republicans like this. When, when their political cause, or their political party has become their ultimate identity... And this inappropriate, shaken to their depths emotion comes out when they say, how can you not like George Bush? Don't be criticizing George Bush. Somebody else, I can't believe you would have anything bad to say about the Clintons. I can't believe you believe in global warming. I can't believe you don't believe in global warming. Now, you can agree or disagree on whatever you want there, but there's this inappropriate emotion because you made this political cause or this political party the ultimate in your life. Let me tell you, don't put your identity in politics. Whatever side. You're talking about something that's just going to shake you to the core. And that's what he's speaking to here. If clear communication, he's a teacher. If clear communication has become an absolute value for me, I've got to speak well. I've got to communicate well. And then if I happen to fail in teaching well on a particular Sunday or a particular day in class, oh my goodness, I'm stricken with neurotic guilt. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that's my ultimate value. It's pretty honest. 
And this is why the Bible says you cannot remove a green dot. We deify something. You can only replace it. So the question is, when you think about your helmet, when you think about your life, the question is not, is achievement, I'm going to not achieve anymore. Well, no, don't do that. I'm not going to think beauty is important anymore. Don't do that. I'm not going to say that having obedient, successful kids is important. You're not removing that stuff. You're just replacing it. That the most important thing is the secure thing. That I am loved. That my identity is in how God sees me. It's secure. It doesn't change. And this is why Christianity is so different from other religions. Other religions don't offer the security. Because they say God accepts you when you're good. And he's sort of disappointed when you're bad. So when you're bad, you better work, 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 work. Oh my goodness, then you fall, 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 fall. And it's never secure. And so you're just as insecure and just as fearful. But the message of the Bible is that Jesus loved you, died for you. And when you ask him to be your green dot, you're forgiven of past, present, and future. Everything you've ever done right to justify yourself and everything you've ever done wrong has been forgiven. That's secure. You are loved right now, not based on what you do, but based on what he did. And now everything else in your life subordinates itself to that. I still like achievement. I still like approval. I still like winning. But it no longer defines me. Even the book of Colossians, Paul mentioned several behaviors, fornication and uncleanliness and passion, evil desires and covetousness. He says, but if you look underneath that, what really drives those behaviors is idolatry. Something besides God has become the number one thing in your life. So how do you do this? How do you replace that green dot? You come to a situation, you start recognizing what that thing is you do. Beauty, it's performance, whatever it is. And in those moments when you feel those emotions going up, you have to remind yourself, I am not my lawn. I am not my neighbor's opinion of me. I'm going to subordinate that desire to God's opinion of me. And it takes the sting out. It appropriately puts it in the proper place. It brings freedom into your life. Let's take a moment and just try and identify what our green dot might be. And notice almost everything up here, almost everything, is a good thing. And just to be honest, I probably change idols every hour. That didn't work. Let's try my identity. That didn't work. Let's try my good works. Ooh, bad day in the marriage. Let's try something else. Is it your family? Is that how you get your ultimate meaning? You're going to eventually be disappointed when you find out that you have broken people in your life. Is it being a martyr? You've been telling a story about how often you've been hurt and that the story is where you get your identity, that these bad things happen to you and people treat you unfairly. Are you more codependent? You have a need to be needed, and that's why it's hard for you to set boundaries because your need to be needed is driving you. Is it honor, being a good person? Being right, it's hard for you to apologize because you want to always prove you're right. It's amazing. You've never been wrong. Because to be wrong would prove that you're never right. What's yours? Let me give you a little test to find out what yours is. Here's how you find out. When when any of these things go badly, you're going to be disappointed. That's normal human reaction. But here's a test. Which one on that list are you not only disappointed, you're devastated when it goes bad? You're not just hurt, you're hysterical. Oh, life is falling apart. 
guess it shows up in my life. There's lots of ways it shows up. Here's one from this week. So I had left, uh, I'm a balloon artist, so I had a bunch of balloons I had left out about two weeks ago when I did a show. And my wife real nicely came up and said, hey, there's some uh, balloons that you left out. Uh, they've been sitting there about two weeks. Could you please pick those up? And what I could have said is, oh, sorry, honey, I don't know how many times I walked past that. I'll pick those up now. I'll take care of it. That's what I could have said. That would have been the wise thing to do. <laughs> but instead, somehow, that simple conversation triggered an idol. The idol was, I should be more appreciated around here. The idol could have been, I should be respected around here. The idol could be, I do a lot around here. You can't just do that simple thing. You're making a big deal about it. Whatever that idol was, it got triggered. And I knew it was triggered because I wasn't just reacting normally. There was an inappropriate emotion that came out. Here's what it sounded like. You know, if I, this is my wife, if I didn't pick this up, I think this would be here forever. This would be here another two weeks. To which I responded, you know, if I didn't pay the bills, the bills wouldn't be paid for two weeks. And I had to watch my game film. I took a few minutes and went, why did I react like that? I'm talking about picking up balloons for crying out loud. And I had to watch my game film in my mind. And then I had to go deeper and say, what was the green dot that was in control of me at that moment? Oh, maybe you can relate to this. I found a lot more of this when I was young married, but it still shows up. Is that when my identity is in being a good husband, and I define me a good husband by my wife never has any uh, problems with anything that goes on. That's a tough thing for her to live up to and me to live up to. So we'd be driving in a car, we had this crummy old Pontiac Le Mans, and she'd say, I, I think I hear a sound coming from the left tire. And I'd get so defensive, because she wasn't just talking about the tire in the car. Somehow she was saying that I wasn't a good provider because we had this crummy car that I couldn't keep well. And I'd get really defensive often, because it wasn't about the car, it wasn't about the peace, it was about my identity. So I traced these inappropriate amounts of emotions. I went back and apologized to my wife, and I went back and said, Boy, I'm so sorry for how I reacted there. You know, I'll take care of this, and we talked about it. So that's how you can do it. You trace your gameplay, your game films, your reactions to the voice in your head. And this is why Jesus is so powerful. Jesus had such an identity in who God was and how God saw him that God turned to him before he began his ministry and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that was such the source of his identity that he could come face to face with power and temptation. And it was good stuff, but it wasn't ultimate stuff. He came before a group of people and they said, we're going to make Jesus king, King Jesus. And Jesus is like, I don't think so. Why? You don't want power? You don't want approval? You want everyone liking you? And it says, Jesus said no and refused them because he knew what was in the heart of man. You see, the same crowd that cheers for you one day will crucify you a few days later. Oh, wait, that happened. Jesus stands before the tempter, and whether you believe in the devil or not, I do, but it might be too weird for you. But he gets access to all the kingdoms of the world, all the riches, all the fame, all of it. And as far as we know from the text, it looks like he has the ability to offer that. And Jesus... He's faced with all that temptation says, hey, that's good stuff, but I don't want that. I have something far greater, the approval of my Father. And because that's my identity, I can say no to temptation. Jesus has this unbelievable ability to use his identity to push against temptation, to push against power. And he says, if you invite me into your life, I'm going to help you get that same identity I had. I'm going to give you that identity because of what I've done for you. And here's what it looks like. How many of you know who Jim Comey is? He was the uh, interim attorney general for a while. 
He's a strong Christian, taught Bible studies in his life growing up, and has been known as a man of character both, uh, by both sides of the aisle when he was appointed as the FBI director. And because his identity is in God and Jesus, not in political power, not in influence, he's able to stand up against severe pressure. When he was the interim attorney general for when Ashcroft was in the hospital, that's when George Bush in 2004 wanted to put in these NSA wiretaps without a warrant. And they were pressuring hard the Justice Department. And Jim Comey had just taken over. And Jim Comey said, no, you cannot have a wire, uh, warrantless wiretap. I'm not going to. So the White House sent people to John Ashcroft's hospital bed to say, you better approve this or people are going to die. You better approve this. This is needed. And John Ashcroft's under the pressure. And he goes, listen, Jim Comey's your assistant director. Go talk to him. And Jim refused the pressure of the White House. He approved the, the pressure of all the NSA and all the horror stories that were told. He goes, no, we're going to, I will prove it if you do it right. You've got to change this and this. And all that pressure he could stand up against because his identity wasn't in his political party. It was in who God made him to be and standing before God and doing the right thing. Ironically, he was approved by both sides of the aisle to be the FBI director. And he now is the one investigating Hillary Clinton's email scandal. In the same way, you can imagine the pressure on his investigation. But he's not defined by political party. He's not defined by power. He says, I want to do the right thing because I'm defined by how someone else sees me. I invite the band to come up. I'll give you one more example of this. I know he's pretty controversial right now, but Tom Brady, before he was controversial, I guess he's been controversial for a while, one of the things that made him successful early in his career is he was willing to dig deep. He was willing to figure out what was going on behind the scenes in his life. He was willing to say, what is the voice I'm listening to? What are the voices, the green dots in my life that are keeping me from overcoming, that are keeping me from, from, from moving forward in my career? And he found himself pursuing truth, watching his own, not just professional game film, but personal game film. And that brought incredible freedom into his life. Let's watch. You know, Jesus had this great phrase. He said, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's ultimately what the Bible's about. It's about bringing freedom into your life because grace brings you freedom. People say all the time, I can't believe you tell stories about the things you do in your house and the things you struggle with because I'm not defined by my reputation. I like having a nice reputation, but it doesn't define me. And I'm never surprised when I make mistakes because the Bible tells me I make a lot of mistakes. And that's why Jesus had to die so I can be honest about my struggles. I'm free. If you want freedom in your life, it all comes from that voice of truth. And we want to help you in your journey. If there's anything we can do to help you, the series will continue next week with Playbook. So we thank you for being here. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on your way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. There's some volunteers there. We'd love to say hi as well. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.